I wonder if you uh, saw the statistic which was quoted in some of the papers a little while ago about how many people have mobile phones in this country. Did anybody see that story? Anybody like to guess what percentage of the population has got a mobile phone? 70%? Anybody want to go higher than that? 92? It's actually 104%. So if we allow for the fact that babies and toddlers haven't got mobile phones yet, though I'm sure it's coming, that's quite a lot of us have got more than one mobile phone. It's a major revolution, isn't it, in communications, that uh, children from, I don't know, about 7, 8, 9, upwards, right through to uh, whatever top age you like, everybody seems to have a mobile phone. When I was a kid, we had phone boxes. Do you remember phone boxes? And they weren't like modern phone boxes. They had a black box inside with a telephone, and it had button A and button B. Now, this is, this is going back into history for those of you that are younger. But, and what used to happen was this. If you wanted to make a phone call, you put in, I think, from memory, as a child, I didn't really make phone calls, but I think it was fourpence, four old pennies. And you put them into the box, and you picked up the phone, and you dialed the number, and it rang And if you got connected, that was fine. If you didn't get connected, uh, nobody home or the line was engaged or whatever, you put the phone down, then you press button B, and your money came back out. And you took it away with you. And as kids, we had this firm belief that there were people who had gone in and made phone calls and forgotten to press button B. So every time we went past the phone box, we went in and pressed button B just to see if we could get fortunes which was a huge amount of money to us. I don't think we ever did. But we were convinced that one day we would be rich. Hasn't technology moved on from the days when most people didn't even have a phone in their home and you had to go out to a box in the street and now we carry them around in our pockets and not only can we make phone calls but we can uh, send text messages, we can uh, download emails. Uh, I understand that you know eventually we will be able to get television and radio and everything, all through this little thing that we carry in our pockets. But, as always with technology, there are a few snags from time to time. Lynn has a mobile phone, and if she's out somewhere and I need to ring her, I uh, call the number, and the phone rings, and it rings, And it rings, and then eventually a voice answers, and it says, you have reached the O2 voicemail service. Please leave your message after the tone. So, great in theory doesn't always work in practice. And of course, you know what the most annoying thing about telephones is? I'm sure we've all had it. Particularly if you want to ring the bank or some big company, what do you get? If you have a balance inquiry, please press 1. If you want a statement please press two. And so it goes on, and at the end of it, you think, well, I didn't want any of those. What do I do now? And you go back to the beginning and try and guess which is the one that was nearest. You see, communication is not just about technology. Communication works best when you've got two people who actually have some sort of relationship with each other, who know each other, even though they might be miles apart and communicating through the phone. One of the, uh, the Saturday papers in its financial section has a column called Jessica Investigates. 
And uh, what happens is people who have trouble with their bank or their building society or their insurance company, they send the details in to Jessica. You know, I have tried to do this and they are not giving me my money and I have got nowhere. And Jessica investigates and then the, the story is written up of how uh, Barclays Bank is going to cough up £3,000 to this person or whatever it happens to be. How does she do it? How can a journalist achieve what the person who's been talking to the bank or the building society couldn't achieve? Well, because she knows somebody on the inside. She's got the right contacts. She knows who to speak to. And that's key when it comes to talking to God. We need, as it were, a contact on the inside. Let's go back around 3,000 years to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. And from verse 23, you remember the story that God's people had been set free from Egypt. It's recounted in Exodus. They traveled in the desert. They refused to go into the promised land. And so for 40 years, they've been wandering about. The whole generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness, bar a couple of them. And here in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is addressing the next generation. He's reminding them of all that God has done for them, and he's telling them what God has in store for them and what God requires from them. And in Deuteronomy 5, verse 23, he's just given them the Ten Commandments in the earlier part of the chapter, reminded them of them. And he's talking about that occasion when God came to Mount Sinai and spoke to them. And he says to the people, When you heard the voice out of the darkness... While the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. We have heard his voice from a fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you, we will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. It's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't you think if you had an opportunity to speak to God directly, if you could hear God's voice speak audibly, wouldn't that be a fantastic thing? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it solve all those problems that we have about guidance? You know, is God really speaking to me or not? I've got a, a friend at church, a guy well into retirement now, and uh, he frequently says, you know, I wish God would write letters because I'm never quite sure whether it's God telling me to do something or not. Wouldn't it be fantastic to hear God speak in an audible voice? Well, it was fantastic. And it was incredibly scary. And the people said, never again. We've survived this time, but we can't live like this. God is too big. God is too different. God is too holy. 
Moses, you go and talk with God. <coughs> Brackets. Then if anything bad happens, it will happen to you and not us. And you come and tell us what God has said to you. We want to be in touch with God, but we want to do it through someone else. And God said to Moses that what they said was good. And so God provided Moses and then a succession of prophets and priests down through the ages. Someone who could be in between. Somebody who could be the contact between us and God. Let's fast forward now a thousand years further on from that story in Deuteronomy. And we fast forward into the letter to the Hebrews. It's a bit different from some of the other letters in the New Testament because uh, we don't actually know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Normally a letter starts with the name of the person who's sending it and the name of the person they're sending it to. And uh, that bit is missing from our letter to the Hebrews. And um, it wasn't an anonymous letter. Originally they knew who wrote it and they knew which congregation it was addressed to, but somehow that has got lost. We don't know. What we can say is that the person who wrote it knew a lot about the Old Testament. And by implication, the congregation, the church that he wrote to, knew a lot about the Old Testament too. Probably a congregation of Jewish Christians, hence the name Hebrews. And the whole theme of the book is to say what God did in Old Testament times was fantastic, but in Jesus, he's done so much more. So Hebrews 4 beginning at verse 14, and we're going to read into chapter 5. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Communication works best when we know somebody on the inside. Then we have the perfect situation. 
in our communication with God because we have a high priest, we have a contact on the inside. A high priest who is in heaven. A high priest who is none other than the Son of God. We don't have to go to a mountain. We don't have to have smoke and fire and flames and terrifying voices out of the sky. We don't have to have all sorts of uh, strange rituals and difficult ceremonies and other things. We can be in contact with God through Jesus. But isn't that just as scary? You know, if Jesus is the Son of God, isn't it just as hard to go through Jesus as to meet God directly? Well, yes, but Jesus is not simply the Son of God, but Jesus is also one of us, able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he is God made human. He's God come down to earth. You know, it boggles the mind if you really begin to think about what it must have been like for Jesus as a human being. He faced the same temptations you and I face. You know, he was tempted to be selfish. He was tempted to make that really clever, smart reply that was going to hurt somebody and put them down. He was tempted to be greedy. He was tempted to be lazy. He was tempted in every area of life, just as we are. He knew what temptation was like. He knew the pressures of living. Sometimes we talk about the pressures of modern living, but you know that every generation faces its own pressures. It's no easier, no harder to live now than it ever was. Whatever we face, whatever we go through, Jesus has been through. It's a bit like uh, someone who coaches a sports team, let's say a football team. It would be no good having me to coach a football team. I can watch it on the box and I can tell you what they're doing wrong. But it wouldn't have any credibility with a team because I've never really played. I don't know what it is to be out there on the field actually doing it. And a coach to have credibility has to be somebody like that, somebody who has played the game and can now translate that back into helping others. And Jesus has been in that position. He knows what it's like to be you and me. The difference is, of course, that he didn't sin. That he didn't give in to those temptations that we give in to. But because of his experience, he's able, as the writer says in chapter 5, verse 2, to deal gently with us. It's an interesting phrase, apparently, in the Greek. It means a balance between anger and indulgence. And any of you that are are parents will know what that's like. You know, you've got the kids and they're playing up. And it's so easy to get really angry and shout at them and, you know, get up to your room, you're in trouble now, you're never going out with your friends again for the next million years, and really blow up over it. Or... And maybe we do this more with other people's children than their own. Oh, they didn't mean it. Don't be too hard on them. Oh, let them off. It doesn't matter, does it? And there are these two extremes that we swing between us. The extreme of anger and the extreme of indulgence. 
And the writer of the Hebrews says we have a high priest who gets the perfect balance. He knows when we need to be told off, when we need to be challenged. He knows when we need to be sympathized with and encouraged. We have a high priest who knows what it is to be you and me. In the Old Testament times, the high priest came and went. They were human beings. They lived 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, whatever. And then a new high priest was appointed. The writer to the Hebrews is not always easy to follow. And uh, never more so than when he starts talking about this guy Melchizedek. Did you pick up that reference twice in the passage we read? He says that Jesus was a priest like Melchizedek. And you think, who was Melchizedek? Where does he come in the Bible? And if you get your concordance and look it up, he doesn't appear very often. Let's just read the story back in Genesis. Some of you will remember this. Um, Genesis chapter 14. It's back in the time of Abraham. Abraham has uh, gone off and rescued Lot, who's been kidnapped. And uh, he's won a battle, and he's returning victorious with all the spoil. And uh, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Hey, that's quite a mystery, isn't it? Because we all know the story, don't we, that God called Abraham. And God revealed himself to Abraham. And that was how God's people were called into being. And that was how the message about God was handed down from generation to generation. Where does this Melchizedek come from? How does he know about God? It says he was a priest of God Most High. And the story tells us that God has plans for the whole world and not just for one people. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because most of us are not Jewish. We are not part of God's original chosen people. But even as God called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even as he built a people, he had plans that you and I should be part of his kingdom, that we should become part of his people. And through this strange man, Melchizedek, we get a hint that God's purposes are bigger and wider than we can possibly imagine. Melchizedek was a king, king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. And he was a priest and a king. In Israel, that was forbidden. It was against the law. The king could not be the high priest. The two things, the secular and the sacred, were kept separate. But in Jesus, they come back together again. He is our high priest and he is our king. A high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's a high priest forever. It's a a piece of logic that um, we probably wouldn't use, an argument we wouldn't use in that way these today. But uh, the writer of the Hebrew says, Melchizedek, we're not told anything about his parents or his family. We're not told anything about his death. So in a sense, he's a priest without beginning and without end. And that's a picture of Jesus, 
high priest from the beginning through to all eternity. doesn't need to change. We don't need to get to know a new high priest. We can always, at all times, in all ways, come to God through Jesus. And then there's a fourth thing that the writer of the Hebrews tells us about Jesus, our high priest. And this is perhaps the most amazing of them all. You see, one of the jobs that the human high priest had to do in Old Testament times was offer sacrifices. And before he could offer sacrifices for the people, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself. Because the high priest was as sinful, as imperfect, as flawed as anybody else. But Jesus, our great high priest, not only is our high priest, but he is also our sacrifice. He's the one who gave himself on the cross for my sin, for your sin, who died in our place so that we could be forgiven. Amazing words in uh, verses 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. There's a picture there, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus before the cross, praying, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Here's the Son of God, become flesh, become a human being, knowing what we go through, living the sort of life that we live, yet without sin, and then coming to a point of giving his own life on the cross for you and for me. Being not only the one who made the sacrifice, but being the sacrifice itself. Once made perfect, the writer says, he became the source of eternal salvation. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus had faults that had to be sorted out. It means once he had accomplished what he set out to do, when he cried on the cross, it is finished. What he was saying is, I've done it. It's accomplished. The purpose of God has been fulfilled. I just want to pause a moment and say, do you know that for yourself? Do you know the forgiveness of God in your life? Because it is possible to come to church year after year after year. It's possible to read the Bible. It's possible to pray. It's possible to be very religious and yet inside. Never to have that personal relationship with God through Jesus, that was made possible on the cross. He's the source of eternal salvation to those who believe, to those who are ready to trust in him. But you may be wondering, okay, so what? Very interesting. Little lecture on high priests in the Old Testament and New Testament, how it all fits together. Very nice if you happen to go to Bible college or you want to study the Bible or something. But what about real life? What's it to do with anything? Well, it's a truth with a huge practical application. Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
Let us then approach the throne of grace. What's the throne of grace? It means simply God. Writers in Bible times didn't like to use the the name of God directly, and so they used all sorts of different ways to refer to God. Approach the throne of grace. Let's come into the presence of God. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of us doesn't go through times when we need grace, when we need mercy. Because God has provided a high priest in Jesus, we can come with confidence into the very presence of God and say, help. I'm stuck. I've messed up. I need help for myself. I need help for others. Perhaps we take it for granted. You know, we've been in church a long time and uh, we have prayers every Sunday and every day at home. Perhaps we pray and we just take it all for granted. Just think back to that scene on Mount Sinai where the people heard from God and were terrified at coming into the presence of the living God. And yet we can do that without being scared to death, without fearing for our lives. We've got a hotline to God through Jesus. You ever been on one of those phone calls where uh, you dial the number and you get a voice that says, you are in a queue. Please hold. Your call is valuable to us. Well, I got good news. There are no answering machines in heaven. God doesn't have a little machine and say, I'll get, I'll get round to you when I'm not busy. We've got a hotline right through to God, through Jesus. We don't need anybody else. It's great to pray with other people. It's great to have other people pray for us and for us to pray for other people. But we don't need anybody else to come to God. The old hymn says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. It's just as if we had a hotline to the Prime Minister or the President of the United States or any other world leader and we could pick up the phone and say we need this done what a position of power that would put us in and spiritually what a position of power we have because we have access to God through Jesus I came across a poem about prayer The writer to the Hebrew says we come to God in our time of need. And uh, I guess sometimes we get bogged down in all sorts of things about prayer and how should we pray and what's the best way to pray. And uh, you can buy books that are full of techniques about prayer. They may be helpful, but be wary because there is no technique. It's really just about you and me and God. And this, uh, this poem is a debate about how to pray. The proper way for man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. Nay, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms with rapt and upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me 
His hand should be austerely clapped in front with both thumbs pointing to the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year, I fell in Hodgkin's well head first, said Cyril Brown. With both my heels a sticking up and my head a pointing down. And I done prayed right then and there, best prayer I ever said. The prayingest prayer I ever prayed, standing on my head. (laughs) It's not about how. It's not about technique. It's about being able to come with confidence in need to God. Because we've got someone on the inside. Jesus, our great high priest. What are you concerned about? What are the things that are troubling you at the moment? Are you concerned about family and friends? Are you concerned about somebody who used to be part of the church family has drifted away? A son or a daughter, a parent, used to know the Lord and has wandered. Someone who's sick. Someone whose life is a mess. Someone with financial troubles. You're concerned about the church fellowship here. Do you look around and say, well, there's lots of empty seats. Are we ever going to see them filled? Do you think about the community that you live in? And all those people living in the houses round about and think, well, they need to hear the gospel. How are they going to hear it? Do you read the newspaper and watch the television and look at the picture that it gives us of the world and think, where's it going? What's happening? How is anybody going to make any sense, bring any good out of these things? The message of Hebrews is come to God with confidence. For your friends, for your family, for your church, for your community, for our world. And expect from God mercy. Expect from God grace. What does that mean? Expect not what we deserve, because if God gave us what we deserved, it wouldn't be much. Not what we deserve, but something so much better. Tony Campolo tells a story. Tony Campolo is an American preacher, uh, sociologist, uh, travels around the world preaching and teaching, uh, heavily involved in uh, world mission and uh, care for communities in need and he tells the story of preaching one day in a Pentecostal church and uh, just as we did before the service here they went into a little back room to pray before the service and the deacon stood around him and laid hands on him because it was a Pentecostal church and prayed for him and one of the deacons began to pray and uh, he said Lord I want to pray for Charlie Stolfus And Tony Campolo's thinking, what are you doing? You're supposed to be here praying for me. I'm the guy that's going to preach. Who's this Charlie? And the deacon prayed on, Lord, don't let that man leave his wife and children. Lord, you know that he's going to run away and leave them. Send an angel to bring that man back to his family. Don't let that family be destroyed. You know who I'm talking about, Lord. You know who he is. Charlie Stoltfus lives down the road a mile on the right-hand side in a silver trailer. And Tony Campolo is thinking, what kind of nutcase is this? Does he really think God needs directions? That God's going to go over to the filing cabinet and open the door? Oh, that Charlie stopped for us. Well, eventually the man finishes praying. And uh, Campolo goes in and he preaches. 
in the church and the service goes through. And uh, at the end of the service, he gets in his car and heads home. And as he's going down the road, he sees a hitchhiker. And he stops the car and uh, opens the door, says, do you want a lift? The guy says, yes, please, gets in. He says, uh, hi, I'm Tony Campolo, who are you? And the guy says, my name is Charlie Stolfus. Campolo drives down the road, comes to the first turning, loops the loop, heads back the other way. Where are you going, says the guy. I'm taking you home, says Campolo. Why, said the guy. Because you've just left your wife and kids, said Campolo. What? What? As they come up to the turning, Campolo turns off, drives onto the side road, right up to the silver trailer, pulls into the drive, and the guy says, how did you know that I lived here? And Campolo says, God told me. And he took the man into this trailer, sat him down with his wife, and they spent several hours talking together, praying together. Eventually, he led the couple to Christ. And that man is now actually a Pentecostal pastor. Does God still speak? Does God still answer prayer? Or maybe not very often in spectacular ways that you can make into a story like that. But if we had time, we could go around everybody in this congregation and everyone that knows the Lord could say, here's a time when God answered my prayer and met me in my time of need. God has given us a great high priest. He's given us, as it were, somebody on the inside so that we can be in touch with him day and night over any situation, nothing too big, nothing too small. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. May God give us fresh appetite for prayer, fresh appetite to be in touch with him through Jesus.